Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from Vivek Wadwa, who worried that our societies may not be ready for the rapid advance of new technologies like self-driving cars. Another potentially transformative technology is artificial intelligence, and our guest this week has cast his mind into the future to try to imagine what it could mean for mankind. With biotechnology, with artificial intelligence, we are learning how to manufacture life. And I think the main products of the 21st century economy are going to be not vehicles and weapons and textiles, they're going to be bodies and brains and minds. The voice of Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari. He shot to international fame with his book Sapiens, which raced through 70,000-odd years of human history. His latest book, Homo Deus, picks up the story and projects it into the future. Let's start with the good news, Yuval. You say that for most of human history, we have been struggling to overcome famine, plague and war, and we have more or less succeeded. As you write, more people die today from eating too much than from eating too little, more people die from old age than from infectious diseases, and more people commit suicide than are killed by soldiers, terrorists and criminals combined. How have we done that? I think it was a combination of good science with good ethics. The scientific bit is the more obvious. Things like improvement in agriculture, in medicine, gave us at least the potential to overcome famine and disease. But I think that without the good ethics, it would not have been enough. If you look at places like North Korea, then you can have real dystopias with a lot of famine and a lot of cruelty, even with all the benefits of modern medicine and agricultural technology and and so forth. And when it comes to war, it's even more obvious that just good science by itself would not have been enough. I think from an ethical perspective, the greatest achievement of humankind in the last century was being able to rise to the challenge of nuclear weapons. And instead of the invention of nuclear weapons resulting in a nuclear catastrophe, a nuclear war, which destroyed humankind, the reaction of the geopolitical system brought us to the most peaceful era in history. There are still conflicts, of course. I come from the Middle East, I come from Israel, so I know it very well. But compared to any previous time in history, things are much better. And this is really a testimony to the ability of humankind to rise to the challenge and make changes in the way that the international political system is organized. What brought about that ethical awakening, do you think? I think the ultimate Nobel Peace Prize as of 2016 should go to the people who invented nuclear weapons because this is really what forced the superpowers to change the ways. So it was the threat of our own extinction that led us to be smarter? Yes, it was only, I think, the threat of the extinction that managed to make sure that all the concerned parties will make this transformation. If it's one-sided, it can never work. Could you say what are the three things that you think will dominate human thinking over the next few decades and centuries? I think the first thing will be overcoming old age and death. Is that possible? In the next 20, 30 years, no. But in the next 100, 200 years, I think yes. There are quite a few people, especially in places like Silicon Valley, who hope to personally live forever. And I think they're going to be a bit disappointed. But within a generation or two, their descendants, if they'll have enough money in the bank, 
I think, have a fighting chance. I think scientists in general would agree that death is not a metaphysical phenomenon. Death is just basically a technical problem, and every technical problem has a technical solution. Maybe we don't know the solution yet, but given enough time and money and investment, I don't think it's impossible to find the technical solution even today. What are the other two that you identify in your book? The other two is uh, finding the keys to happiness. I mean, nobody would like to live forever in great misery. And what we've seen so far is that most of the big achievements of humankind, despite bringing prosperity and peace and longer lives, did not really make people much happier than before. So I think that finding the real keys to happiness will be the second big project of the 21st century. And is that just the ability to pop the right pills? That's one direction. The more we study happiness and suffering, the more we realize that it is a very complex phenomenon and that there is no easy solution for that. And one of the things that history shows us is that humans are very, very good in acquiring power, but they are very bad in translating power into happiness because they have a very simplistic understanding of what happiness and suffering are. The third big project underlies both of this, and this is to upgrade humans into gods. We will try to gain for ourselves powers and abilities which traditionally were thought to be divine abilities, not only overcoming death, but the ability to shape and to create life. The first thing that God does in the Bible is to create life, to create animals and plants and humans according to his wishes. Now we are trying to do it. With biotechnology, with artificial intelligence, we are learning how to manufacture life. And I think the main products of the 21st century economy are going to be not vehicles and weapons and textiles, they're going to be bodies and brains and minds. And it is quite likely that we'll even go far beyond the gods, because so far, even if you believe in creationism and in the Bible, the only thing God managed to create is organic life. And we are now trying to create the first inorganic life forms after four billion years of evolution. And I think it's very likely that in the 21st century, we will see inorganic life forms, which will be not only the greatest revolution in history, it will also be the greatest revolution in biology since the beginning of life. And you have a fascinating section in your book where you debate the distinction between intelligence and consciousness. Yes, we often tend to confuse intelligence with consciousness, and when we speak about artificial intelligence, people jump to the conclusion that it will also be artificial consciousness. In almost all science fiction movies, the super-intelligent computer is invariably also conscious and has desires and emotions and so forth. But actually, consciousness and intelligence are very different things. Intelligence, basically, is the ability to solve problems, whereas consciousness is the ability to feel things, to have subjective experiences, to feel pain and joy and love and hate and so forth. Now, for millions of years, evolution has been progressing towards intelligence by way of consciousness. And in humans, the two are inseparable. We solve problems by using our emotions and feelings. Emotions are not irrational. They are rationality made flesh. But this is not necessarily the only way to progress towards superintelligence. 
maybe with artificial intelligence and computers, we are discovering a completely independent way towards intelligence that bypasses these narrow straits of consciousness. And already now, what has taken natural selection millions of years to accomplish, we are accomplishing in computers within a few decades. So the future might be super intelligent entities devoid of all consciousness. And this is actually a very frightening thought, because when you think about it, most people tend to value consciousness more than intelligence. It's a pretty stupefying vision. <laughs> I'm still trying to get my head around that. But you say that we have been the smartest algorithm on the planet for 70,000 years, and we're in danger of being superseded, as you've just explained. Can you explain how organisms are comparable with algorithms? Well, I think that you can summarize 150 years of biological research since Charles Darwin in just three words. Organisms are algorithms, and the entire way that an organism functions is, according to present-day science, basically algorithmic. If you're a baboon in the African savanna and you see a tree with bananas on it, but you also see that not far from the tree there is a lion, this is the kind of problem that organisms have to solve every day. These are the tests of natural selection, and if you don't pass the test, you don't survive and you don't reproduce. Now, you have to make a decision. Do I go for the bananas or not? In order to make the right decision, you basically need to calculate probabilities. You need to calculate the probability that you will die of hunger if you don't eat the bananas versus the probability that the lion will eat you if you try to reach these bananas. In order to make the calculation, you need to gather a lot of data about the bananas, how far are there, how many bananas, are they ripe or green? You need information about the lion, how far is the lion, how fast can he run, is he asleep or awake, and so forth. And you need information data about your own condition, how hungry you are, how fast can you run, and so forth. Now, the way that organisms take in all this data and make the calculation is through what we call sensations and emotions and so forth. But what we are now realizing, this is basically an algorithmic way of solving problems. We don't solve problems by some kind of divine inspiration. We have an algorithmic process of millions of neurons in the brain firing. And this is how baboons and giraffes and also humans calculate probabilities and make decisions which decide whether they will survive and reproduce or not. And you said something very interesting in there that on the basis of present-day knowledge, and at one point in the book you speculate that maybe we might prove one day that organisms are not necessarily algorithms, there mm -hmm. is something above and beyond that algorithmic calculating machine. Do you think there is any space for kind of non-algorithmic being? Is there any space for a soul, as some people would call it? I don't know about soul because this is just a mythical term and we have no evidence for the existence of eternal souls. But there is one big riddle in life which so far the algorithmic explanation of life has failed to answer and this is consciousness. Consciousness is very different from soul. Soul is a religious story about an unchanging essence that remains throughout life and maybe even beyond death. Consciousness, on the other hand, is the subjective experience that everybody experiences every second of life. And 
as of 2016, we don't have a good algorithmic account of how consciousness emerges or what might be the function of consciousness. Mainstream biological theories postulate that somehow when billions of neurons are firing electrical signals one to the other, the subjective feeling of love or hate emerges from it. But even though they are very good in finding correlations, when these neurons are firing, I feel love. When these other neurons are firing, I feel hate. We have absolutely no explanation for how the firing of electrical signals is translated into these subjective experiences. Even worse, we have absolutely no idea what could be the function of the subjective experience. Maybe we'll have a good answer in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. This is, I think, what most neuroscientists believe, that the answer is just around the corner. But it could be that it's just a big misunderstanding and there is something else to life besides neurons firing and algorithmic processes of, of calculation. In the last chapter of your book, you focus on dataism, as you mm -hmm. call it, which you describe as a new religion, in a, yes. way, a new ideal. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Could you define what that is? Yes, I think what we need to understand about religion, religion is not about gods. Religion is about authority. What is the highest authority? When you have a problem in your life, a practical problem, how do you solve this problem? The problem could be personal, whom to marry, and the problem could be collective, political, who should rule the country, or should we wage war or peace? Now, traditional religions said that the highest authority of all is God, and when you face a problem in life, you consult with God through the Bible or scriptures or the priests. Then in the last two, three centuries, we saw the rise of basically a new religion, or if you don't like the word religion, we can say a new ideology, which is humanism. And humanism said, no, the highest authority in the world are the feelings of individual humans. And so when you have a problem in life, you consult with your feelings. Of course, there are situations when what makes me feel good makes you feel bad, and then you have an ethical debate. But the ethical debate is conducted in terms of human feelings and desires, not of divine commandments. Now, what we are seeing in the 21st century is the emergence of a new practical authority which comes from algorithms external to the human body, huge data processing systems that are very close to understanding us better than we understand ourselves. And once we have an external algorithm that understands us better than we understand ourselves, I think more and more authority will shift away from humans to algorithms. Let's take books as an example. Previously, if you wanted to choose what book to read, in the age of the traditional religions, you would ask the priest, and the priest would say, read the Bible, obviously. And then came humanism and told us, just go to a bookshop, start flipping through books, and just follow your feelings and emotions, and choose whatever book 
seems to you most interesting. Now you go online and Amazon recommends books to you on the basis of its algorithms that get to know your reading habits. When you read a book, say on Kindle, already today, Kindle is gathering information on you at the same time that you're reading the book. It can know which pages you read fast and which slow, when you stopped reading the book and never came back to it. Now you can connect Kindle even today to face recognition algorithms so that the Kindle will know, the book will know, not only if you read fast or slow, but also start understanding your emotional reactions. If you're smiling, if you're sad, if you're bored. Within 5-10 years, you'll be able to connect Kindle to biometric sensors that monitor your heart rate, your blood pressure, activities in, in the brain. And with this kind of technology, Kindle, which means Amazon, will be able to know exactly what was the emotional impact of every sentence you read in the book. And whereas we forget most of what we read, Amazon will never forget anything. Based on this information, it will be able not just to recommend books, it will basically be able to recommend everything. Is that how you're going to write your next book? Are you going to be using all this technology? And what's it going to be on now? You've written all about the history and you've written all about the future. What is left to write about? Well, as a writer, I certainly think it would be an amazing tool. When I write the book, I try to envision it using my own emotions. But my own emotions are often a very bad guide to the emotions of other people. I usually find it with irony. I write a passage in an ironic tone. When I read it, I, I hear the irony in my mind's ears. And then afterwards, people take it completely seriously. <laughs> they get the opposite message from what I intended. But I don't think that I'll be using this for my next book, at least not if it's written in the next five or ten years. We are not there yet. I don't have any concrete plans for a next book. I tend to allow my books to write themselves. This is how the new book, Homo Deus, actually was written. When I finished Sapiens, I got all these invitations to give lectures and talks and interviews, and most people are more interested in the future than in the past. So most of the questions were actually about the future. So in this way, from lecture to lecture, interview to interview, I started thinking and writing what came out eventually as the new book, as Homo Deus. And how long will it be before you are rendered obsolete as a writer and an algorithm will write a better book than you? It depends what kind of book. Already today, you have algorithms writing simple routine newspaper pieces on things like football matches and economic developments. Even when it comes to writing books, I wouldn't be absolutely surprised if it would happen within, say, 50 or 100 years. As you make clear in your book, the whole dataist revolution is going to have a massive transformative impact on our societies, our political systems, and so on. Who are the high priests of dataism at the moment? Who are the people who own the algorithms, and how are they going to be important in shaping our futures? Well, at present, the people who push it come from two directions. They come from the direction of computer science. But for me, actually, the more important people are in the life sciences because the real root of the revolution is not in computer science, it's in biology. It's the idea that organisms are algorithms. If this is not true, then yes, you can have very sophisticated computers and artificial intelligence and all that, but we will never be able to understand humans and to replace humans. So the really important people in this business are actually the biologists. 
And you see it again in practical terms that all the high-tech firms like Apple, like Google, like Facebook, which began as purely computer science companies, are now becoming biotech. And they are hiring more and more people from the life sciences and more and more their most innovative projects are related to biology and not just to computer science. There's always a fantastic suspicion of any writer who tries to jump across so many sectors as you have done. And I mean, certainly in the comments section at the FT under your essay that you wrote mm -hmm. for us, there was a lot of scepticism saying, you know, what does a historian know about the latest <laughs> developments in biology or artificial mm -hmm. intelligence? Is it possible, do you think, to get a real sense of the frontiers of knowledge in all these different areas? It's a bit like with nuclear weapons. In order to understand the implications of nuclear weapons, you don't have to be a nuclear scientist. You don't have to understand how exactly a nuclear bomb works. You just have to know what it can do. So it's the same with artificial intelligence, for example. I rely on the experts, on what they say that artificial intelligence is already able to do and what it will be able to do in 20 years, in 40 years, in 60 years. And then as a historian, I start from there. Okay, if the experts are correct, and we are very close to the point when AI can drive cars better than humans, what then are the political and social implications? For example, if you replace all the taxi drivers and bus drivers and so forth by a single network of self-driving cars, what does it mean? What does it mean in terms of unemployment? What does it mean in terms that all the political power that the union of taxi drivers had now belongs to a single corporation that owns the algorithms that manages the entire transport network, and this corporation in turn is owned by a handful of billionaires? So what are the political implications? And I think that at present, we have a lot of people who are doing fantastic research about the technical stuff, but not enough people who are doing research on the political and social implications. And in the same way that I don't really understand the technical stuff, somebody who is a wonderful engineer and understand very deeply machine learning, he or she may have no understanding at all of philosophy and economics and politics, so their ability to judge the implications of machine learning for society are really questionable. Who should have that debate? Because, I mean, as you also say in your book, the ability to process data is now becoming incredibly difficult for humans or parliaments or mm. democracies to absorb and to process, isn't it? So if the algorithms are getting better than us at processing of all this data, then how, as a society, are we going to ever have these meaningful debates that you think we need to have? That's a really, really good question, a very frightening scenario, because certainly the political institutions and mechanisms that we've inherited from the 20th century, they are just unable to process the amount of data and to understand what's happening in the world, which is why governments are becoming just managers and not leaders. They manage the day-to-day -day business of the country, but they have no vision for where we will be in 20 or 30 years. In the 20th century, politics was a kind of battleground between these huge visions of the human future. You had a communist vision, you had a fascist vision, you had a liberal vision. Today, nobody has any vision. And not just in democracies, even in autocratic regimes. If you compare Putin with Lenin, 
Lenin had the technology of the early 20th century. He had steam engines and typewriters and radio. And with this technology, Lenin was dreaming about destroying the old world and building a completely new human society. Putin has artificial intelligence and biotechnology and all that, and he is dreaming about bringing back Tsarist Russia. He is looking backwards and not forward. So I think that not only democracies, but also autocratic regimes are just unable to cope with the rapid pace of technological change. And really the only people who try to formulate visions for the future, they are the people in Silicon Valley. I'm worried that they are the only ones because, you know, they don't represent anybody. They were never voted for by anybody. So we need to try, before it's too late, we need to try and make these issues political issues and not just scientific issues. Final question from me, and could be the final question for mankind as well. <laughs> But do you think this technological revolution is now inevitable, that dataism has such a momentum behind it that it will eventually render humans obsolete? I don't think that anything is inevitable when it comes to technology. In one sense, yes, you cannot just say, oh, this is very frightening, stop all research in computer science. We don't want it. This is not going to happen. But the direction it is taking is not deterministic. If you think about the technology of the Industrial Revolution, trains and radio and electricity and all that, you could use the same technology to create a communist dictatorship, a fascist regime, or a liberal democracy. The trains and the radio did not tell you what to do with them. You had some human agencies there. And similarly with biotechnology and AI, at least today, we still have some control over where it is taking us. My fear is that if we don't make intelligent use of this agency, then very soon it will get out of our control and we'll simply won't be able to understand what is happening and lose our ability to direct this revolution in a more benign direction. That's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much, Yuval. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week, when you can hear Richard Waters, the FT's West Coast editor, in conversation with the entrepreneur and scientist Astro Teller. As director of Alphabet's X Laboratories, he oversees research on driveless cars, balloons that will deliver the internet, and much more. If you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.